Section 5 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 44 The North Britain. One of the most beautiful places on one of the most beautiful rivers in the world is Medenham on the Thames, hard by Marlow. In the awakening of spring, in the tranquillity of summer or the rich decline of august the changing charm of the spot appeals with the special insistence that association lends to nature medenham is a haunted place those green fields and smiling gardens have been the scenes of the strangest idols those shining waters have mirrored the fairest of frail faces those woods have echoed to the names of the light nymphs of town and the laughter of modish satyrs it was once very lonely in its loveliness a ground remote where men could do and did do as they pleased unheeded and unobserved where now from april to october a thousand pleasure boats pass by where a thousand pleasure seekers land and linger a century and a half ago the spirit of solitude brooded and those who came there came to a calm as unvexed and as enchanting as the calm of avalon they made strange uses of their exquisite opportunity. They profaned the groves whose very winds breathed peace. They polluted the stream that a poet would have found sacred. The remains are there of a Cistercian abbey, the ruins of a ruin, twice fallen into disuse and decay. It was a ruin in the eighteenth century when a member of Parliament, who was also a baronet and a chancellor of the exchequer, took it into his evil head to repair it under the care of sir francis dashwood it was restored for a new and altered life the abbey rose again and once again was associated with a brotherhood of monks but where the quiet cistercians had lived and prayed a new brotherhood of st francis named after their founder devoted themselves to all manner of blasphemy to all manner of offence in a spot whose beauty might well be expected to have only a softening influence whose memories might at least be found exalting a handful of disreputable men gathered together to degrade the place and as far as that was possible themselves with the beastly pleasures and beastly humours of the ingrained blackguard the hellfire club was dead and gone but the spirit of the hellfire club was alive and active the monks of st francis were worthy pupils of the principles of the duke of wharton they sought to make their profligacy in which they strove to be unrivalled piquant by a parody of the religious ceremonies of the christian faith the energy and the earnestness which other men devote to the advancement of some public cause to the furtherance of their country's welfare or even to the gratification of their own ambitions these men devoted to a passion for being pre-eminent in sin conspicuous in infamy if they succeeded in nothing else they succeeded in making their names notorious and shameful they succeeded in stirring the envy of men no better than they but less enabled by wealth or position to gratify their passions they succeeded in arousing the loathing not merely of honest men but even of the knaves and fools whose rascality was not so rotten and whose folly was not so foul as that of the noblemen and statesmen who rioted within the walls of medenham it is curious and melancholy to record that the leading spirits of this abominable brotherhood 
were legislators in both houses of parliament men of old family great position large means men holding high public office members of the government their follies and their sins would scarcely be worth remembering to-day were it not for the chance that gave them for companion and ally one of the most remarkable men of his age a man whose abilities were in striking contrast to those of his associates a man who might almost be called a man of genius john wilkes was the son of a rich distiller and of a presbyterian mother he had received a good education in england and at leyden where so many of the englishmen of that day went as students he had travelled much in his youth upon the continent on his return he was induced by his father he being then only two-and-twenty to marry a lady who was exceedingly rich but who had the misfortune to be at least ten years older than her husband it is scarcely surprising to find that the marriage did not turn out happily wilkes was young fresh from the bright continental life delighting in pleasure and the society of those who pursued pleasure how far a happier marriage might have influenced him for good it were idle to consider his marriage he regarded always and spoke of always as a sacrifice to plutus not to venus and he certainly was at no pains to make it any more of a sacrifice than he could help his wild tastes his wild companions soon sickened and horrified mrs wilkes the ill-matched pair separated and remained separated for the rest of their lives wilkes was delighted to be free he was at liberty to squander his money unquestioned and unchallenged in the society of as pretty a gang of scoundrels as even the age could produce no meaner more malignant or more repulsive figure darkens the record of the last century than that of lord sandwich sir francis dashwood ran him close in infamy mr thomas potter was the peer of either in beastliness all three were members of parliament all three were partially responsible for the legislation of the country two were especially so responsible all three were bound at least to a decorous acknowledgment of the observances of the church one was in special so bound sir francis dashwood and lord sandwich were then or thereafter members of the government sir francis dashwood was remarkable as having been the worst and stupidest chancellor of the exchequer known to history lord sandwich was made first lord of the admiralty as for the third in this triumvirate of blackguards mr thomas potter was a son of the archbishop of canterbury and he was soon afterwards made vice-treasurer for ireland into such honourable hands were the duties of government delivered less than a century and a half ago in this society wilkes was made very welcome he brought to their filthy fooleries something resembling wit he brought an intelligence as far above that of his companions as that of the monkey is above that of the rabbit while he had money he spent it royally as the rest if he rivalled them in their profligacy he outstripped them by his intellect they were conspicuous only by their vices he would have been a remarkable man even if it had pleased providence to make him virtuous it had not pleased providence to make him attractive to look upon there were few uglier men of his day few who lost less by their ugliness but though we are well assured that his appearance was repulsive he redeemed his hideousness by his ready tongue and witty mind 
he said of himself truly enough that he only wanted half an hour's start to make him even with the handsomest man in england wilkes flung his money and his wife's money about recklessly while he played his part as a country gentleman upon the estate at aylesbury which his unhappy wife had resigned to him when they separated of this money some eight thousand pounds went in an unsuccessful attempt to bribe his way into the representation of berwick and seven thousand more went in the unsuccessful attempt to buy himself the representation of aylesbury it is probable that he hoped to advance his failing fortunes in parliament his fortunes were failing failing fast he made an ignoble attempt to bully his wife out of the miserable income of two hundred a year which was all that she had saved out of her wealth but the attempt was happily defeated by that court of king's bench against which wilkes was to be pitted later in more honourable hostility it was perhaps impossible that wilkes could long remain content with the companionship of men like dashwood and sandwich it was certainly impossible that men like dashwood and like sandwich could for long feel comfortable in the companionship of a man so infinitely their superior in wit intelligence and taste the panegyrists of sandwich for even sandwich had his panegyrists in an age when wealth and rank commanded compliment found the courage to applaud sandwich as a scholar and an antiquarian on the strength of an account of some travels in the mediterranean which the world has long since willingly let die but the few weeks or months of foreign travel that permitted sandwich to pose as a connoisseur when he was not practising as a profligate could not inspire him with the humour or the appreciation of wilkes and a friendship only cemented by a common taste for common vices soon fell asunder there is a story to the effect that the quarrel began with a practical joke which wilkes played off on sandwich at medenham sandwich in some drunken orgy was induced to invoke the devil whereupon wilkes let loose a monkey that had been kept concealed in a box and drove sandwich into a paroxysm of fear in the belief that his impious supplication had been answered for whatever reason wilkes and sandwich ceased to be friends to wilkes cost at first and to sandwiches after sandwich owes his unenviable place in history to his association with wilkes in the first place and in the next to his alliance with the beautiful unhappy miss ray who was murdered by her melancholy lover the rev mr hickman at the door of covent garden theatre the fate of his mistress and his treason to his friend have preserved the name of sandwich from the forgetfulness it deserved in those days wilkes made no very remarkable figure in parliament it was outside the walls of westminster that he first made a reputation as a public man in the unpopularity of bute wilkes found opportunity for his own popularity the royal peace policy was very unwelcome and agitated the feeling of the country profoundly political controversy ran as high in the humblest cross-channels as in the mainstream of courtly and political life at that time we are told by a contemporary letter-writer the mason would pause in his task to discuss the progress of the peace and the carpenter would neglect his work to talk of the princess dowager of lord treasurers and secretaries of state to win support and sympathy from such keen observers the ministry turned again for aid to the public press that had been so long neglected by the whigs smollett the remembered novelist murphy the forgotten dramatist 
were commissioned to champion the cause of the government in the two papers the britain and the auditor the government already had a severe journalistic critic in the monitor a newspaper edited by john entink which had been started in seventeen fifty five the monitor was not at all like a modern newspaper it was really little more than a weekly pamphlet a folio of six pages published every saturday and containing an essay upon the political situation of the hour its hostility to bute goaded the minister into the production of the britain which was afterwards supplemented by the creation of the auditor when it was found that smollett had called up against the ministry a more terrible antagonist than the monitor for the britain only lives in the memories of men because it called into existence the north britain wilkes had entered parliament as the impassioned follower of pitt he made many confessions of his desire to serve his country professions which may be taken as sincere enough but he was also anxious to serve himself and to mend his fortunes and he did not find in parliamentary life the advancement for which he hoped twice he sought for high position under the crown and twice he was unsuccessful he wished to be made ambassador to constantinople where he would have found much that was congenial to him and his wish was not granted he wanted to be made governor-general of the newly conquered quebec and again his desires were unheeded wilkes believed that bute was the cause of his double disappointment he became convinced that while the favors of the state lay in bute's hands they would only be given to tories and more especially to tories who were also scotchmen if bute could have known it would have been a happy hour for him which had seen wilkes starting for the golden horn or sailing for the st lawrence but bute was a foolish man and he did his most foolish deed when he made wilkes his enemy the appearance of the north britain was an event in the history of journalism as well as in the political history of the country it met the heavy-handed violence of the britain with a frank ferocity which was overpowering it professed to fight on the same side as the monitor but it surpassed entick's paper as much in virulence as in ability under the whimsical pretense of being a north briton wilkes assailed the scotch party in the state with unflagging satire and unswerving severity in the satire and the severity he had an able henchman in charles churchill those who are inclined to condemn wilkes because for a season he found entertainment in the society of a sandwich a dashwood and a potter must temper their judgment by remembering the affection that wilkes was able to inspire in the heart of churchill while the scoundrels of medenham were ready to betray their old associate and with no touch of the honour proverbially attributed to thieves to drive him into disgrace to exile and if possible to death the loyal friendship of the poet was given to wilkes without reserve churchill was not a man of irreproachable character of unimpeachable morality or of unswerving austerity but he was as different from the sandwiches and the dashwoods as dawn is different from dusk and in enumerating all of the many arguments that are to be accumulated in defence of wilkes not the least weighty arguments are that while on the one hand he earned the hatred of sandwich and of dashwood on the other hand he earned the love of charles churchill churchill's name and fame have suffered of late years since byron stood by the neglected grave and mused on him who blazed the comet of a season 
the genius of churchill has been more and more disregarded but the georgian epoch so rich in its many and contrasting types of men of letters produced few men more remarkable in themselves if not in their works than charles churchill the cleric who first became famous for the most unclerical assaults upon the stage the satirist who could be the most devoted friend the seducer who could be so loyal to his victim the spendthrift who could be generous the cynic who could feel and obey the principles of the purest patriotism was one of those strangely compounded natures in which each vice was as it were effaced or neutralized by some compensating virtue it may be fairly urged that while churchill's virtues were his own his vices were in large part the fault of his unhappy destiny the westminster boy who learned latin from vincent bourne and who was a schoolfellow of warren hastings of cooper and of coleman might possibly have made a good scholar but was certainly not of the stuff of which good clergymen are made an early marriage an unhappy marriage contracted in the rules of the fleet had weighed down his life with encumbrances almost before he had begun to live compelled to support an unsuitable wife and an increasing family churchill followed his father's example and his father's injudicious counsel and took holy orders men took orders in those days with a light heart it afforded the needy a livelihood precarious indeed for the most part but still preferable to famine men took orders with no thought of the sanctity of their calling of the solemn service it exacted or of its awful duties and its inexorable demands they wished merely to keep famine from the door to have food and fire and shelter and they took orders as under other conditions they would have taken the king's shilling with no more feeling of reverence for the black cassock than for the scarlet coat churchill was not the man to wear the clergyman's gown with dignity or to find in the gravity of his office consolation for the penury that it entailed the establishment offered meagre advantages to an extravagant man with an extravagant wife he drifted deeper and deeper into debt he became as a wandering star reserved for the blackness of bailiffs and the darkness of duns but the rare quality he had in him of giving a true friendship to his friend won a like quality from other men dr lloyd undermaster of his old school of westminster came to his aid helped him in his need and secured the patience of his creditors he was no longer harassed but he was still poor and the spur of poverty drove him to tempt his fortune in letters like so many a literary adventurer of the eighteenth century he saw in the writing of verse the sure way to success like so many a literary adventurer of the century he carried his first efforts unsuccessfully from bookseller to bookseller the impulses of his wit were satirical he was not dismayed by failure the stage had entertained him and irritated him and he made the stage the subject of his first triumph the rosciad was in every sense a triumph its stings galled the vanity of the players to frenzy at all times a susceptible brotherhood their susceptibilities were sharply stirred by churchill's corrosive lines and acidulated epigrams their indignation finding vent in hot recrimination and virulent lampoon only served to make the poem and its author better known to the public churchill replied to the worst of his assailants in the apology which rivalled the success of the rosciad and gained for the satirist the friendship of garrick 
who had affected to disdain the praises of the Roskiad, but who now recognized in time the power of the satirist and the value of his approval. Churchill himself was delighted with his good fortune. He was the talk of the town. He had plenty of money in his pocket. He was separated from his wife, freed from his uncongenial profession, and he could exchange the solemn black of the cleric for a blue coat with brass buttons and gold-laced hat. Lest the actors whom he had lashed should resort to violence for revenge, he carried with ostentation a sturdy cudgel. It was a formidable weapon in hands like Churchill's, and Churchill was not molested, for Churchill was a man of great physical strength. He tells the world in the portrait he painted of himself of the vastness of his bones, of the strength of his muscles, of his arms like two twin oaks, of his legs fashioned as if to bear the weight of the mansion-house, of his massive body surmounted by the massive face, broader than it was long. The ugly face was chiefly remarkable, according to the confession of its owner, for its expression of contentment, though the observant might discern sense lowering in the penthouse of his eye. Like most giants, he overtaxed his strength both mentally and physically. Whatever he did, he did with all his mighty energy. He loved, hated, played, worked at white heat, as it were, and withered up his forces with the flame they fed. In nothing did his zeal consume itself more hotly than in his devotion to Wilkes. Churchill met Wilkes in 1762 and seems to have fallen instantly under the spell which Wilkes found so easy to exercise upon those who came into close contact with him. Undoubtedly Churchill's friendship was very valuable to Wilkes. If Churchill loved best to express his satire in verse, he could write strongly and fiercely in prose, and the North Briton owed to his pen some of its most brilliant and some of its bitterest pages. In the North Briton, Wilkes and Churchill laid about them lustily, striking at whatever heads they pleased, holding their hands for no fame, no dignity, no influence. It was wholly without fear and wholly without favor, if it assailed Butte again and again with an unflagging zeal, it was no less ready to challenge to an issue the greatest man who ever accepted a service from Butte, and to remind Dr. Johnson, who had received a pension from the king's favorite, of his own definition of a pension and of a pensioner. Before the fury and the popularity of the North Briton, both the auditor and the Briton had to strike their colors. The auditor came to its inglorious end on February 8, 1763. The Briton died on the 12th of the same month, leaving the North Briton master of the field. Week after week, the North Briton grew more severe in its strictures upon the government, strictures that scorned the veil of hint and innuendo that had hitherto prevailed in these pamphleteering wars. Even the monitor had always alluded to the statesman whom it assailed by initial letters. The North Briton called them by their names, in all the plainness of full print, the name of the sovereign not being accepted from this courageous rule. But the fame of the North Briton only came to its full with the number 45. End of Section 5